Turn back to uh, Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin our reading, since we read the entire chapter in the first service, we will begin our reading in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Galatians 3, 16. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore serveth Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The Reverend Richard Adams helps us out for this afternoon. For undoubtedly under this gracious dispensation there is no abridgment of any privilege to the infant seed of believers which they before enjoyed so that they should not now be brought to the Lord as uh, that he may own and bless them and the promises be pleaded on their behalf whose parents are heirs. For as much as the father's right to the promises gives the children some kind of right in the, to the same inheritance, yea, the promise and precept do answer each other as a deed and its counterpart, Galatians 3.29. There was no need of, part, of particularizing every subject to be baptized, any other than those who were, dis, who were discipled, it being so well known, uh, who had the covenant seal by the common practice of the Jews under the former dispensation of the covenant, thus Christian parents are first to contribute their endeavors toward their children's spiritual life. So Mr. Adams then speaks of 
Christian nurture, what we talked about toward the end of the sermon this morning with regard to Abraham and Genesis 18. Bringing children up faithfully is a part of the way, God says, that he will bring the promise to pass that he had promised to Abraham, the covenant. All right, so we've, we have looked at, uh, we've looked at the garden, right? We looked at the flood, We've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Moses, and we looked very briefly at David. If I might return to David for just a moment before we move on to what we will call the new covenant in Christ. We said that at every stage there was a little bit more opening of that blossom of the covenant of grace, right? A little bit more opening, little by little, more and more. That at every stage we might see that which uh, was essential to the covenant of grace brought forward and nurtured and then also that which was added by way of revelation to give the people of God more insight into the saving work of God. One of the things that we saw that was contiguous throughout is that God works with people in what we call a churchly way, an ecclesiastical way. That there is a people upon the face of the earth that worship the Lord. They are called together in public worship to worship him. And that has always been in the history of redemption with some differences that I'll explain in a moment. A mixed multitude of people. Not all Israel was Israel in the Old Testament. Not everyone who met and called upon the name of the Lord did so in sincerity and truth from a pure heart, a heart purified by faith. Not all those who who assembled with Moses were believers. As a matter of fact, many of them were unbelievers. We saw that same principle in the first family, in Adam's family, right? With regard to Cain and Abel. We saw that in Noah's family with regard to Shem and Ham. We saw that in Abraham's family with Ishmael and Isaac. We see that with Moses and the Israelites. And we see it even in David's family, don't we? That when David uh, has, a, uh, has a son, the son that, that he would have to reign over Israel, his favorite, Absalom, we find that Absalom is a rebel and not a true son. And that if he could, he would kill his father. There's an interesting parable that Jesus makes use of in Matthew chapter 21. It's the parable of the vineyard. You'll remember that. And in that parable of the vineyard, what Jesus says there is that the keepers of the vineyard, what do they say? They say, this is the heir. Let us kill him and take the inheritance to ourselves. Right? Well, this is exactly what Absalom did. He desired to kill his father and to take that, that inheritance to himself. So, even within David's family, we have this, this ecclesiastical construct that is common. It goes all the way back to the days of Adam, where we have a visible worshiping people of God that are comprised of believers and unbelievers. Yet they all partake of the sign. They are visible partakers of that sign in covenant with the Lord 
through the sign. And perhaps this is something that needs to be fleshed out a little bit here. Uh, sometimes as, as, uh, as Presbyterians, even Reformed Presbyterians, we are reluctant to give uh, a lot of outward objective uh, uh, importance to the sacraments because we want to make sure that we're giving proper uh, importance to what's going on inside, to what they point to. And, beloved, that's okay. However, we don't want to minimize the outward signs to the point that they are meaningless. That outward baptism doesn't do anything at all. It certainly does some things. It brings someone into communion with the visible church. And the visible church, beloved, is the expression of the church that God has given to us in this world as that saving institution of His. To be connected to the church through baptism is to enjoy a privilege that many in this world never enjoy. That they are marked out with the name of the Lord. That they belong to Him in that sense. That they are His people. That He will fulfill certain promises to them. Beloved, listen to me. There are certain promises that occur that will come to pass on every baptized person, whether or not they take them up savingly. Right? They're associated with the people of God. They're not associated with the world. Therefore, they have the seals. They have the preaching of the word. They have a Bible in their church and in their homes. That's why we need to distinguish between churches that are synagogues of Satan and not churches. And churches that are true and imperfect churches of Christ. We ought not to expect that the seals have any efficacy at all in churches that are not, well, where the candlestick has been removed. We cannot expect that. But where the candlestick still burns, where the light of Christ still shines, although it may be accompanied with some error, it is still the light of Christ. And those who come under the bond of that covenant are exposed to that light. And beloved, that is objective, real, and greatly advantageous. We must never forget that. So this principle then of of the visible church, it it is something that continues into the New Testament. This is part of, of the continuity, but it is changed in the visible church. The concept of, of the, um, the, can I put it this way? This is kind of a clunky way to put it, but I don't have another way, of the ratio, if you will, of believers to unbelievers, changes because of the greater power and efficacy of the work of Messiah. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. When we begin to talk about continuity, there are our, our, our dear friends on the other side of the aisle here from us, the the, uh, the Baptist churches that will want to maintain the, quote, newness of the new covenant in such a way that it is really a, a new covenant altogether. Well, it is a new covenant in that it is called the new covenant. Jesus will say the new covenant in my blood. But that doesn't make it a new covenant with regard to its foundation. It is still the covenant of grace. And we can ascertain that, as we already have, from Galatians chapter 3. 
Who are we called if we're in covenant with Christ? If we've been baptized into Christ, who do we become? We become the children of Abraham. Not someone else, but the children of Abraham. That is, we partake of the same covenant Abraham partook of. The faith of Abraham is the faith of all those who have saving faith in Christ. Remember the three things. What it, what it, what it takes to be of the true circumcision spoken in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3. Right, We worship God in the Spirit. That is, by His Spirit. By His commanded word. And then by the Spirit of God lifting up our hearts to worship the Lord in that way. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. If we have those three things, beloved, this is evidence that we are the true circumcision. Abraham had those things. He rejoiced to see Christ's day. He worshipped God in the Spirit. He departed from iniquity, didn't he? He put no confidence in the flesh, although he may have struggled with it a little bit. He put no confidence in the flesh. So in Hebrews chapter 8 then, we're, we're, we're going to bring the covenant of grace into the new covenant. It was the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, as we have seen. And there are contiguous elements that come with it. And so how does it come into the new covenant? Verse 6, talking about Christ. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, and how much also... Uh, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, is ready to vanish away. And when he says ready to vanish away there, I believe what he's pointing to is the destruction of the temple presently to come. So when we talk about this, we, we, we talk with our, with our beloved Baptist friends, and they are truly every bit of that. Um, and, 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 and they will say things like, you see, the newness of this new covenant is that everyone in the new covenant will know the Lord. You don't need to tell your neighbor, know the Lord, like they did in Israel, because very few of them knew the Lord. 
Well, the, let me respond to that with, a, with just some encouragement for you. Okay? I, I, I don't think that the writer here in Hebrews 8 is saying what our Baptist friends make him out to say. And here's why. The first thing is, a part of this new covenant is I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Beloved, you know as well as I know that I can show you time after time in the Psalter and in the prophets where this was prophesied of the New Testament, but it was also a present reality upon a few in the Old Testament. The psalmist will write, Yea, thy law is upon my heart. We will see this over and again in Scripture. And so the first point is that we don't have as hard a bifurcation between the Old and the New Covenant as many would have us believe that we do. The second thing that is often said is, Every man shall know the Lord. Well, then what we, what we want to do is ask a follow-up question to that. Does that mean, then, that everyone in your church is a regenerated individual? And that evangelism doesn't take place in here, it takes place out there. Is that what you believe? And most of our thinking Baptist brethren will say, well, no, we can have unregenerate people in our, in our assembly. If that's true, then... We have, we have dropped back from this every man is brother, right? They will all know me. The word all there, as it often does in Scripture, doesn't really mean every person head for head, does it? If we would admit that excommunication must take place from time to time, that there must be church discipline for someone would show themselves to be an unbeliever through deep, scandalous, and recalcitrant sin. What are we saying? Not everyone that was received into the church and entered into covenant really um, entered into covenant. They were false professors. They were hypocrites. If we admit that hypocrites are in the church, that there are unbelievers in the midst of the church, then we can't take the word all in 8.11 there as a literal all. And we don't. So then what will happen is the conversation will, will, will change and, 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 the, and the focus will change to, well, what's being spoken of here is the invisible church. Well, I don't disagree that everyone in the invisible church will at one point or another be regenerated. I don't disagree with that at all. None of us would. But we call it theologically the invisible church for a reason. We don't deal in the invisible church in that way, do we? We know it's there. We know that there's only one church and that God has given us an administration here on earth to take care of. But we don't call the, the visible church coextensive with the invisible church. Rome does that, but we don't do that. We know much better than that. Ecclesiologically, we will not say that everyone that has joined the church is a regenerate person, right? And ecclesiologically, we, we will also not say that we can see everyone who's regenerate and will and will receive them into our membership. We don't do that either. So then what are we left to here? What is Hebrews uh, 8, 6 and following actually teaching us? 
Well, I would assert that there is a, a, a comparison that is being made, but it's not the comparison that some people make it out to be. Some folks would make it of the whole of the Old Testament, comparing it to the whole of the New Testament. Or the people of God is characterized from Adam to Malachi, on the one hand, and on the other hand, from Matthew to Revelation. And that in the New Testament, all are Christians, and in the Old Testament, they're all covenant breakers. You see, when you put it in those terms, you see that that's not the comparison that's being drawn. Does the writer give us any clue then as to how we might exegete this passage properly? He does. Listen to what he says. Verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. We have come through just recently in, in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapters 4, 5, and 6, with a discussion concerning what the people of God looked like in those days. And we saw how many of them were truly unbelievers, especially those that came out of Egypt with Moses. How many believers did we have standing with Moses at the Red Sea? You know, you can probably count them on one and a half hands. Right? Moses, Miriam, Aaron, uh, Joshua, a few others, Caleb. The day that they came out of Egypt, the people of God were unbelieving. They proved that a year later when they came to Kadesh Barnea. And they wouldn't believe the Lord and follow him, and, and follow him into the land of promise. Now I believe that many of those became believers during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. The Lord simply didn't leave them in that way. But... On the day that he brought them out of Egypt and made covenant with them at the base of Sinai in Exodus 24, we have an entire nation saying all that the Lord has commanded us we will do and be obedient. And really only six or seven of them meaning it. Their hearts were not with the Lord. And that is the covenant or the administration of that covenant that these Hebrew Christians are in danger of going back to. And so the Apostle Paul or Oops, I slipped. The apostle here, who is anonymous in the text, <laughs> will tell them, you don't want to go back to that covenant. You want to go forward with Christ. Because in this new covenant, this better covenant, this covenant that is based upon the historical death of Christ now accomplished, his resurrection, his session at the right hand of God, his forever priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron means that even in its visible expression upon earth, you're going to have a lot more believers than you had in that day when they came out of Egypt. You don't want to go back to the kind of assembly you had in the day that you came out of Egypt. You want to go forward and enjoy the assembly that has been promised by God in the days of the New Testament when the comparison will be so different that it will be like none on the one hand and all on the other. So, it's, so in my understanding of Hebrews chapter 8, it's a, 
It's not a sea change. It's simply the full blossoming of the covenant of grace. Now it has come to its full strength and power because Christ has been, uh, has come, has lived his perfect life, has procured that righteousness, has died on the cross, has been buried, has been raised from the dead, has been ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God ever where he ever liveth to make intercession for us, which is one chapter earlier. So we don't need that priest to die over and over again. He has died once and once for all. And in that he has died once for all, then we ought not to expect there to be uh, a completely different expression of what the church looks like, but we do expect it to blossom and grow. The visible church today looks different from the visible church of the Old Testament because dividing between those two is the work of Christ on earth. So, having said all of that, now we come to this, uh, this understanding of, of what about our children? What do we do with our children in the church? How do we receive them? Uh, first of all, we have seen that in, in Adam's family, in Noah's family, in Abraham's family, and then especially in Abraham's family with the sign of the covenant, we see that the seed were included in that covenant of grace. They were always brought to the Lord as as those who belonged to him. And so as they they always belonged to him in the past, and we we have seen, haven't we, not not a lesser efficacy, but always a greater efficacy as we move forward in time in the covenant of grace, more exposure, more power, more efficacy, what do we do with our children today? So in terms of continuity then, we have already seen that the faith of believers today is the same faith that Abraham had, the same faith that Moses had, the same faith that Jephthah had, the same faith that, that David had. All of those those fathers of the faith, they had the same faith in the Lord that we do. Turn back with me to Galatians chapter 3 for a moment. The question must arise here. When When we look at our father Abraham... How is it, in what way, can we call him our father? We call him our father because he is the father of the faithful, as we read earlier in Romans chapter 4. If we are baptized into Christ, we are Abraham's seed, 29. Now there are those who would say that the baptism that is being spoken of there is spirit baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't really disagree with that. I just don't want to separate the sign from the thing signified. If if it is appropriate for us to remember that all those who are baptized into Christ Jesus truly and really in their souls are Abraham's seed, then it is also appropriate for us 
to give them the sign as Abraham's seed. If we are Abraham's seed, certainly our children are Abraham's seed. Abraham here is called the father of us all, it says. Yes, but we changed that, didn't we, at Sinai, Pastor Riddell? No, no, we didn't. What does Moses uh, give us when he, when, he, when he gives us the law? He gives us the example of a mediator. We actually advanced the idea. What does Paul teach us about the law? Paul teaches us that the law was a mercy from God to advance the covenant, not to abrogate it or to start it over in another venue or another way. We have this continuity that is given to us scripturally here. So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be known as the children of Abraham. In verse 16, we hear that the promise was not made to the children of Abraham apart from Christ, ever. Notice what it says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. And so when the Lord told Abraham, unto thee and thy seed will I give the world, he's really giving it to Christ. And we see that, don't we, in Psalm 2? Ask of me, and I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the nations, under thy governance, and so on. And so, beloved, the sign of the covenant is visited on all of the physical seed of Abraham because of Christ who would come. Those individuals were at least in that outward sense, in this visible administration, related to Christ in that way. Abraham himself had faith in Christ, and all who were Abrahams had that same kind of relation. You say, but not all of them were believers, and that's the doctrine of the visible church. That's right. The first son of Abraham that was circumcised was... Ishmael. Isaac was also circumcised. But the rite of circumcision was given in between the births of Ishmael and Isaac so that we might know that it pertained to Isaac particularly as the child of promise. Isaac continues as a type of Christ. How is he a type of Christ? He is the type of Christ in that he is the type of Christ, the seed, the promised seed, and he is a type of Christ as he's received back, as it were, from the dead on Mount Moriah, according to a, a type of the resurrection. And so Abraham received him back as from the dead. So then, when we come to the New Testament, as we saw earlier, we, we understand that circumcision continues. That sign of the covenant continues. It continues in those three passages that we looked at. Philippians chapter 3, Romans chapter 2, and now Colossians chapter 2. And I want to turn specifically to Colossians chapter 2. So the apostle here will, will tell the Colossian church to turn away from everything else and turn to Christ because they are complete in him. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. 
ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let, let me rephrase that term circumcision of Christ for a moment and say Christian circumcision. There is such a thing as quote Christian circumcision but it's not the ancient rite of cutting. Notice the next phrase tells us what that is. Buried with him in baptism wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. That is that we are united or buried with Christ in death and in life. In his death and in his life. In his death we die unto sin and in his life we rise unto newness of life. We are united to Christ in the likeness of his death and of his resurrection. The Apostle Paul uses the same term baptism to describe that to us in Romans chapter 6. We'll not take the time to turn there because we're hustling. So, when we come to the New Testament then, we see that circumcision gives up not its, not its name, but it gives, up, it, it gives up its use. It is no longer used as it was in the Old Testament. But its idea continues. And I could show you by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 and Jeremiah chapter 4. I could show you that there was such a thing in the Old Testament as heart circumcision. Which is exactly what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3. And I emphasize the word Philippians there because it's New Testament. Rather than seeing circumcision go by the boards altogether when we come in, there is a remnant of circumcision because there is an advancement to the covenant of grace. And that advancement to the covenant of grace now works itself out in that the sign of circumcision gives itself up. The circumcision of Christ or Christian circumcision is no longer cutting, it's washing, it's baptism. It's fitting that the Lord should use baptism instead of circumcision. Why? Because baptism was not an unknown thing to the people of God. They had many baptisms in the Old Testament. All kinds of washings that taught them what circumcision taught them. The, the removal of the filth of the flesh. You can do that by surgery. And you can do that by washing. You can have that surgery, if you will, performed on your inner man. And the surgery or the washing can also be performed on your inner man. And so Paul will use the same terminology. He'll use circumcision, but he'll also use baptism. And so note Hebrews chapter 9. Sorry, chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies 
washed with pure water. We're still doing the same thing, beloved, with baptism that we did with circumcision. It is simply that circumcision had become identified with Judaism and Judaizing, and so it had to go. The Lord determined and He prepared us for the day with all of the washing rites of the Old Testament for the day that baptism would come into that room to speak to the people of God about their sinful defilement and the need of its removal which is affected upon the inner man by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who will sprinkle clean water upon us and we shall be clean. Ezekiel 36, 25. Which also says, I will write my law within your hearts. Speaking of the days of the New Testament, when the sign will no longer be a sign of cutting, it will rather be a sign of washing. So we would expect then to see an instance of this. We would expect to see it worked out in the the New Testament, wouldn't we? If the sign of circumcision is replaced by baptism then we would expect to see it performed in the same way that circumcision was performed, in the same way that it is said to do the same things. It was said to do the same things, right? To cleanse the inner man. Heart circumcision, heart sprinkling, and so on. So we should be able to find some places in the New Testament where baptism is said to come into the room of circumcision. And we do. Because there is continuity in the covenant of grace and advancement both. So let's look at a few of those places. We'll find them in the book of Acts. I'll save the best for last. We turn to Acts chapter uh, 16 and we'll look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Philippi. We'll remember first of all that Paul was not planning ever uh, of going to Philippi but that he received a vision in the night. He was headed to Bithynia instead. And he received a vision in the night of a man of Macedonia. They must have worn distinctive dress because Paul saw a man of Macedonia in a dream by night saying, come over here and help us. Remember that. We'll see that in verse 10. Immediately after he'd seen the vision, or verse 9, come over here to Macedonia and help us, verse 10. And after he had seen the vision... Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. There were godly women meeting at a riverside on the Sabbath day. They were obviously Jewish women because no no one else met on the Sabbath. And they met there because they did not have enough families in Philippi to form a synagogue and to have a rabbi, a teacher, and so on. So they met there and they prayed together every Sabbath day. They did what they could to keep the Sabbath as devout followers of Jehovah. They heard the preaching of Paul. Notice verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart 
the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. May I say, beloved, in this passage, circumcision has been displaced entirely by baptism. We say, in what way? Let's compare this passage to Acts, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> Verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day that it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night much to be observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, he shall eat thereof. A foreigner and an hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house it shall be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house. Neither shalt thou, shall ye break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. So what happened in ancient Israel? If a man wanted to join himself to the household of faith, what did he do? He came and he brought all of his males to be circumcised. Is there a mention here in Exodus chapter 12 of any of the disposition of the mindset of those that are in the household no not a mention the only person mentioned with regard to a mindset or disposition of the mind is the head of that household and who does he bring all of his males remember we talked about expansion we have expanded in the new testament haven't we we see philip in acts chapter 8 who is he baptizing men and women there is an expansion isn't there at the end of Galatians chapter 3 that we've already read today. Neither male nor female, right? Paul, in the context of being baptized into Christ, will say there's neither male nor female. You see, we have expanded that sign. It has now come to all of the members as they stand before the Lord. Yet, notice that it is only upon the event with regard to a household of the head of that household and his disposition. Lydia makes that very plain. If you were listening during the reading there, she said, if ye have judged me to be faithful. She didn't say a word about anyone in her house. Yet all of the household was baptized. Now let's turn over, let's turn back to Acts chapter 16 for a moment. A little bit later in Philippi, Paul and Silas are put in jail. They're put in prison. And in the middle of the night, while their feet and ankles and 
uh, wrists and, and hands are in the stocks while they're bound in stocks. They are singing psalms. And as they sing, the Lord sends a great earthquake. All the chains are loosed and all the doors are opened in the prison. The keeper of the prison, verse 27, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled because he would have been tortured and killed by his handlers. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and uh, let's go ahead and clean up the translation. And the whole house rejoiced, he having believed in God. That's literally what it says. Whose faith is being contemplated in Acts 16.34? Just the jailer. Who's being baptized? The whole house. Whose faith was contemplated in Exodus chapter 12? Just the head of the house. Who was circumcised? All the males. And so you see the parallel, beloved. And you see how in Colossians 2, 11, uh, 10 and 11, uh, Christian circumcision, while the idea has not gone away, this, that particular sign has been changed. Now, one more passage, and then we'll be done for the day. In Acts chapter 2, I, I told you we would save the best for last. Would we expect then, as we've seen the flower open from Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and then to Christ in the full light of it. Would we expect then a, a contraction or an expansion? We already answered that question in several particulars. We're going to expect an expansion of the blessings of that covenant. So Peter preaches his, his sermon here in Acts chapter 2. It's on the day of Pentecost. He stands up with the eleven. They have been speaking in tongues everyone heard the great things of God. Now Peter will bring it home by preaching Christ to them. So he will tell them about Christ's resurrection. He will tell them about his atoning death. He will also accuse them of being guilty of the murder of the Prince of Life and that they desired a murderer instead of him. By the time he is done with his sermon, the Holy Spirit has moved upon that crowd and they are pricked in their hearts. Ooh, what does that mean? There is a spiritual operation going on upon their hearts. Hmm. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of of the Holy Ghost. Let's stop right there for a moment. Peter has already talked through the prophet Joel. We could also bring in several other prophets 
in the Old Testament that talk about the days of Messiah and the special promise of Messiah, which was that upon his successful work, he has authority to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. That we expect an expansion, a great expansion of this covenant of grace. It is no longer Jewish. It is now throughout the whole world. It is all flesh that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon. This is what Peter has already cleared for us from the prophet Joel. So then verse 39. This promise, may I say, that very often in the, in the New Testament, when we hear the word promise, we are, we are to recall to mind the word covenant and the, and the, the, um, the, the group of promises that were put together to make up the entirety of that covenant throughout the Old Testament, right? There was a complex of promises that God gave to Abraham, four particular passages of Scripture that speak about that covenant. So, there, so the covenant is built up on promises, and so sometimes the covenant itself is called the promise. That's what it was called in Galatians chapter 3. The promise was to Abraham and to his seed. It's a covenant, isn't it? So Peter will use that word promise here. But we understand that this is Abrahamic language. This is what the Lord said to Abraham. The covenant is to you and to your seed. What does Peter say here? For the promise is unto you and to your children. He's using the Abrahamic language. It can't be denied. And so we don't have a contraction of the promise. Where when we come to the days of the New Testament, the Lord says, I don't want you to put the covenant sign on your children anymore. That would be, if if I could say, countercurrent to the expansion and flowing of the covenant of grace. It would be completely against all of the promises of God where that stream of the covenant, that trickle that begins in Genesis 3 is said to be a mighty stream by Ezekiel 48. It's against the current of God's blessings and grace to say we're going to cut out those who were previously in. So the promise is to you. The covenant is to you and to your seed is what Peter says there. And now to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. There's the expansion we were looking for. That's that final relief that we expected in these days of the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And with many other words did he, did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Beloved, I venture to say, I will never be dogmatic on this point, but I will venture to say that when Peter stood there and said to them, Repent and be baptized each one of you, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children, that if any of those Israelites that were there from from across the known world had their children with them, they were baptized too. How could they be excluded at that point? How could they have been cut out of the advancement of the covenant of grace well it would have simply been impossible 
And there would have been such a hue and cry raised by all those that stood there who were used for 2,000 years of applying the covenant sign to their children. No, these, these are the, are the ways that we make use of that continuity of the covenant of grace and yet maintaining certain distinctions within it. It's like my old Mustang illustration, right? I had a Mustang, a 1970 Mustang, and that Mustang had two tires, oh, sorry, four tires, a front seat and a back seat, one steering wheel, one engine, one transmission. So I come up to a guy, I drive up in my truck in a parking lot, I get out and he's got a brand new Mustang. And I say to him, wow, that's a nice Mustang. I had one. It was a 1970. He said, that's not a Mustang. This is a Mustang. Does your, did your Mustang, he'll ask me, did it have rack and pinion steering? Well, no, it didn't. Did it, was it fuel injected? No, it wasn't. No. Did it have all these electronics on it? Did it have this mapping? No. No, it didn't. See, this is a Mustang. And then I ask him, well, how many engines does your Mustang have? One. Mine, too. How many tires? How many transmissions? And you get the picture. right? There is advancement, but there is also continuity. And beloved, one of those great terms of continuity is that the children of believers, the children of those who profess their faith in Christ, they are brought into the sphere of the covenant. And they receive those objective things that belong to those who are baptized minimally outwardly, at very least outwardly, into Christ. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the clarity of Thy Word. Uh, Father, we're grateful that Thou has granted to us today to, to, to perhaps pick up off of uh, small chunks or small verses or phrases in scripture and to look at the sweep of the whole and that thy word ought to be handled in both of those ways we thank thee for those times where we are very detailed in uh, the exegesis of small passages and also those times when the broad themes of scripture come uh, to us very obviously in a study like today's we pray that we might take great comfort in the fact that thou hast promised to be a God to us and to our children. That the promise is to you and to your children and to those that are afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call. As we are reminded of these things today, O oh Lord, we pray that we would remember our need of washing in the inner man. That the sacrament of baptism would always humble us knowing that we do not come to thee on our own and cannot come to thee on our own. We remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who taught us, except I wash thee, thou hast no part with me. So Lord, we ask that we might remember that we are in need of washing. We pray as well, Father, that we would remember the expansion of the covenant today. That it is to all people. And that our hearts would not be pinched toward any. 
but that with grace, with love, with a sense of obedience to Christ, a cheerful obedience, we would be ready to speak a word in season to him that is weary by his sins. And that we would show him that there is a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. We pray for the preaching of the gospel in the churches as well. And for a proper knowledge of what the visible church is. That thou wouldst help us to examine ourselves. Not, uh, not simply to think on, uh, on what it means to belong to thee as a one-time event. But a day-to-day event. And that we would examine ourselves and finish well. That we might be found in Christ. And so we thank thee for him who in the first days of the sin of our race showed himself to be our substitute and covering. We pray that we might come to Christ and remain with him as our substitute and our covering. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.